be back. For those of you who were here last night, I'm just going to repeat a little bit about what I said last night for those who who basically weren't here last night and so don't really kind of know where I'm coming from. Uh, So let me just do a little review. Uh, The first thing I said last night is that our problems in evangelism are really not one of methodology, that my problem is not that, well, if I just get this method honed better or this method, then uh, I'd be, you know, much, much, much more fruitful in evangelism. That may be true to some degree, but actually that's not my biggest problem. My biggest problem is I need to have a greater heart for God. And what I suggested last night is that that's all of our problem, that all of us have this problem that we need to develop a greater heart for God, and that when we develop a greater heart for God and a passion for Him, then there's some things that you and I can do to be more effective in reaching people today. I said that the world we live in today is different than it was when I was in college. And because of that, we need to do what's called pre-evangelism. And I defined it last night. The pre-evangelism is this. If evangelism is planting seeds of the gospel, pre-evangelism is tilling the soil of their mind and heart so that they'll be open to listening to the truth. And I said that sometimes people's hearts are kind of hardened. So we need to plant this, uh, basically we need to till the soil so we can plant the seeds of the gospel. So this model that I'm going to teach you this morning is a pre-evangelism model that we call conversational pre-evangelism. Now, before I get into the model... Uh, for a few moments, I want to talk about the role of the Holy Spirit, because the role the Holy Spirit has the vital role in evangelism. And there are two things that I want to remind you of. First of all, I want you to remember that we are just the instrument. Okay, you and I are just the instrument. And the verse that comes to mind is 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven, where God says, God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. In other words, there's nothing special about you and I. But God wants to take ordinary people like you and I, and he wants to do extraordinary things. Do you believe that? You know, growing up, the son of a famous theologian and apologist, you know, it was kind of tough for me. And uh, to be honest, I've never really felt comfortable doing any of the things that the Lord has called me to do. I've certainly never felt qualified to do what he's called me to do. But here's the thing I want you to understand about myself, that I have chosen to be obedient to what God has called me to do. And if God calls you to do something, he will empower you to do it. Amen? And my life is a living testimony of what God can do if we decide to be obedient. Because when I was a little boy, I already felt like he was calling me to ministry and to preaching and speaking. And I was terrified of that thought. And if you had known me when I was a little boy, you would just be amazed. And I'm using myself as an example to say that God does use weak people. I see myself as weak, but he wants to use us to do incredible things. Now, there are two things we need to keep in mind. 
What are the two things we want the whole, uh, to trust the Holy Spirit to do as it relates to what we're talking about today? Well, there may be more than these two, but these are the two I want to focus in on. We need to learn, ask the Holy Spirit to empower us to speak in a way that makes a difference and to empower us to live godly lives. Now, in a post-Christian world, why are those two important? Because people may care how little we know until they know how much we care. Now, there's some Christians that speak the truth, but they don't live the truth. Now, shame on us for speaking the truth, but not living the truth. And then there's some Christians who live the truth, but they never get around to speak it. Now, shame on us for living the truth and never speaking it. If you and I are going to be effective in reaching our non-believing friends today, we need to both speak the truth and live the truth. Now, this model, this conversational pre-evangelism model that I want to teach you, involves four types of conversations that we can have with people. Hearing conversations, illuminating conversations, uncovering conversations, and building conversations. This morning, we're going to look at hearing and illuminating. Now, I want you to look at the graphic here. I want you to notice right at the center is the word hearing. Why is that at the center? Well, the most important thing I can teach you about this model in doing pre-evangelism is that you and I need to be better listeners in our conversations with non-believers. Do you know why that's so important? Because if you and I don't listen to what our non-believing friends say, we're not going to hear what they're actually saying. We're not going to know where they're coming from, and therefore we won't know how to talk to them in a way that will actually help them to take steps to the cross. Amen? So, you know, as evangelicals, we're great on proclaiming. We're not so great sometimes on listening and really hearing where people are coming from. The other thing I want you to notice is these arrows here. What does that mean? These arrows mean that we always want to start with hearing conversations. I'm going to teach you this in a certain order. Hearing, illuminating, uncovering, and building. But when you go to practice pre-evangelism, you may not do it in that order. Because it's more of an art than a science. But you can always start with hearing. And where you go next really depends on the situation and a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. Because you may try to ask an illuminating question to your friend, a thought-provoking question, but you may discover they have emotional baggage. And they don't want to hear anything about what what you have to say about Jesus because they had a bad religious experience when they were a child. And they've just been turned off by the whole thing. So you may have to then go and deal with uncovering conversations. So do you understand what I'm trying to say here? I'm going to teach you these in an order, but we always start with listening. But where we really go next is really depends on the sensitivity to the situation and the the Spirit of God, how the Spirit of God is speaking to us to talk to that person in that moment. Now, these four types of conversations correspond to four roles that we can play, the musician, the artist, the archaeologist, and the builder. Let's look at the first one, the musician. Under the musician, there are three principles, three words I want you to remember. Okay, Listen, learn, and hear. Listen, learn, and hear. Is that in your notes, by the way? 
Is that written down? Listen, learn, and hear? Okay. Under illuminating conversations, there's three other words I want you to, to learn. Clarify, surface, and remember. All right. So I'm trying to simplify this to make it easier for you. So let's look at the first part, listening. What do we want to do? Well, I mentioned this a few moments ago. We want to, first of all, listen carefully. James 1.19 and 20 says this, My dear brethren, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. How many people here remember as a child their mother saying something like this to you? Are you listening to me? <laughs> do you remember that? Why do we remember that? Well, maybe we didn't always hear what our mother was saying. And a lot of times, unfortunately, we don't always hear what our non-Christian friends are saying. And because we don't listen carefully, I believe we lose important clues that will help us to help them take the steps to the cross. Now, how do we increase our listening skills? Well, those of you who are married, who are husbands, probably understand this principle that I'm going to talk about next. It's called reflection. Do you know what I mean by that, men? Do you know, you know why reflection is very helpful in a marriage situation? I've seen a bunch of men are smiling, so they know what I'm talking about. If my wife says to me, I want you to go pick up the kids at 2 o'clock, and I hear her say 3 o'clock, and I don't ask for clarification, guess who's in trouble? I'm in trouble. Okay, So I'm saying in a marriage relationship, reflection is a very helpful thing. I'm saying in a witnessing situation, reflection is also a very important thing. For example... So what we want to do is reflect back what people are saying. And you'll see in the video that we're going to show tonight of a conversation I had with a student that I'm reflecting. I'm asking for clarification. I'm asking him to, to clarify what he is really saying, to make sure that he knows what he's saying or she knows what she's saying. And here are some of the words that I would use to, to do reflection. Now, what I hear you saying is this. All right? Or tell me if I've heard you correctly. You're saying this. And so if you and I practice this principle of reflection, you may find that it's easier then to listen and really begin to hear a lot more in your conversations with nonbelievers, and that may open a door for you to move in a spiritual direction. So that's the first step. Listen carefully. I cannot overestimate, uh, emphasize that enough, um, that we need to, as evangelical Christians, listen a lot better than we have. The second thing I want to talk about under uh, hearing conversations is this word, learn. Learn their story. What do I mean by this? Well, what I mean by this is that we are all on a spiritual journey. Do you realize that? And some people may be closer than others, but all of us are in a spiritual journey. Let me illustrate what I mean by this. I remember after 9-11 talking to a college student one day, and he said to me, you know, he wasn't a Christian. He said, you know, I, I realize after 9-11 now, my life's got to count. It can't be just going to work 9-5. to five. I, It's got to be part of something bigger than that. 
Now, this student didn't realize it, but he was on a spiritual journey. He was realizing that he was supposed to be a part of something bigger than himself. Now, Solomon talked about this in Ecclesiastes 3.11. Listen to this. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. You see, God has created us to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. And all of us know this. God has put this in our hearts. Even non-believers know this. And so, in a sense, every non-believer is on a spiritual journey. Now, they try to fill that void with different things. Remember the quote from Pascal? Inside the heart of every person is a God-shaped vacuum, um, uh, and that basically that only God can, can fill that vacuum. And yet people try to fill that vacuum with all kinds of things. But it can only be fulfilled through a relationship with Jesus Christ. So find out where people are in their spiritual journey. Now, um, so basically, sometimes you can ask questions like, I'm curious, uh, where are you in your spiritual journey? That's a good question you can ask someone who, who says something like, I want to, my life's got to be a part of something bigger. I, I need a sense of purpose or meaning in my life. Ask them this question. Where are you in your spiritual journey? What have you learned so far? Where do you think you need to go to next? Those kinds of questions. Now, let me give you an example of this. Let's just call this person Mary. That's not her name. But this is someone that I've talked to in Charlotte last year. Now, listen to what she said. These are her words. I consider myself somewhat of an agnostic. Do you know what an agnostic is? It's someone who says either I don't know there's a God or I can't know there's a God. Now, I'm not sure if she understood that difference, but, but it's not an atheist. It's not someone who says there is no God. It's someone who says, oh, I'm just not so sure. All right. So she said this, I consider myself somewhat of an agnostic, but there have been a few times in my life where I felt the presence of a creator. The one that comes to mind is at the end of a hike at the National Park. The outlook at the end of the trail was unbelievably beautiful. And I thought, there are powers at work way beyond our comprehension to have created this. You see, Mary is on a spiritual journey. And you talk to people every day. And as you're talking to them, and as you're listening to them, you need to kind of focus in on where are they in their spiritual journey? What are they saying to you that gives you the impression that they believe their life is more than just the here and now? That they want a sense of meaning or purpose to their life. Now, there are some things that we can do to uncover their story. There are three things I want to talk about. First, I don't think this is in your notes. Ask questions about what is important to them. When you ask someone a, a questions about what's important to them, you may, I'm not saying you will, you may find out kind of what, what's going on spiritually. Or it may give you an idea of what's going on spiritually. Secondly, or, 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 or basically you could ask a question like this under finding out what's important to them. I'm curious, what gives you the motivation to get up every morning other than getting a paycheck or going to school? If you're a student, you could ask a question like this. 
so what's important to you in life other than just getting an education? <laughs> I, once I asked the, the, the chairman of the history department when I was in college, I was a history major, what's, what's important to you? And he said, you know, getting a degree. And so I kept asking him, why is that important? And then I said, well, why is that important? And why, why, why? And finally we got to some kind of spiritual significance. And I shared the gospel with the chairman of the history department. That was kind of, as I think about that, that wasn't really smart, was it? Because I was a history major, and he could have affected my grade. But, you know, at that time, I was just a radical for Jesus, and I didn't really care what people thought. And, uh, but I was asking him these kinds of questions. Why is this important to you? And these are the kind of questions that we should ask people. Secondly, ask questions about purpose and meaning. Do you think it's possible that you and I were put here on this earth for some kind of purpose? Do you think it's possible that you and I were put on this earth for some kind of purpose? And if so, what do you think that was? And then you can ask a follow-up question. I remember talking to a student uh, a few months ago who didn't have any religious belief. That's what he told me. But he felt a sense of purpose for his life. So here's what I would have asked him, but I didn't get the opportunity. But if I did, here's what I would have said. If you have been placed here for some kind of purpose, do you see yourself as being on some kind of spiritual journey? And if he said yes, I'd follow it up with another question. Where do you think this journey is taking you? Where do you think this journey is taking you? See, what I'm trying to say is you don't have to use these exact words, but be creative in how you ask these kinds of questions so that it encourages them to want to what? What did we talk about last night? To continue the conversation, right? Not put up a wall and run the other direction when they see you coming. Remember how we define success in evangelism? Success in evangelism is we have a spiritual dialogue with someone in such a way that the next time they see us, they want to continue the conversation. That's what I'm suggesting. The third point is this. Take note of the experiences that have shaped their beliefs and ask them about those experiences. Maybe somebody had a bad religious experience in church, and that's kind of shaped them and move them away from God and Christianity. Ask them about those experiences. That's especially helpful when we're uncovering uh, barriers, talking about uncovering conversations. So the two points so far are listen carefully, learn their story, and here's the third point under hearing conversations. Hear the sour note. Hear the sour note. So you say, what in the world are you talking about? Well, how many people have had this experience in church? Don't raise your hand. Um, you're singing in church, you're singing a song, and someone behind you is off key. Has that ever happened to anyone? Now, you're not sure if their pitch is too high or too low, but you know something doesn't sound right. Now, here's the thing I want you to understand. Every day, you and I have conversations with non-believers. And if we're listening to them very carefully, you know what's going to happen? We're going to hear what? 
sour notes or gaps in their beliefs. And I believe that the Spirit of God can use that to help them take a step to the cross. Because some people, if they don't identify the gaps or sour notes in their beliefs, they're not going to be motivated to take the next step towards Christ. Sometimes people are very comfortable with their beliefs. And if they don't realize that the foundation upon which they're building their life is not strong enough to hold them, they're not going to be motivated to take a step towards Christ. Does that make sense? And so that's why it's very important, and we're going to look at this in the Scriptures. That's why it's very important we identify sour notes. I mentioned last night that a couple days ago I was talking to my friend who grew up in a Baptist church and hasn't been back there in 12 years and told me he prays to God every day, but he doesn't ever read the Bible. Now, does that sound like a sour note to you? He claims to be Christian, hasn't been to a church in 12 years, and, and in fact doesn't even read the Bible. What I'm saying is that these are the kind of sour notes in our conversations with people that we need to make a mental note, not just point out all the inconsistencies that we hear right away and, and point those out. You know, if I had pointed out to him all these inconsistencies in a very direct way, he probably would have stopped talking to me a long time ago. But I had just, I'm doing this indirectly and gradually over a period of time, beginning him to help, uh, help him to see that something is wrong. And I used the illustration last night about his fiance. I said, what, what would you think if your fiance... Um, if you if basically you spend all your time every day talking to your fiance, but you never listen to what she had to say to you, how do you think she would feel? Did she think? Do you think she would feel that you love her? <laughs> and so I use that as an illustration to help him understand. Well, how must God feel? That's a sour note, and I was trying to help him to identify this. How about this one? There are absolutely no absolutes. Is that a sour note? Now, you will probably never hear anyone say there's absolutely no absolutes. Maybe, maybe you have heard people say this. But this is a frequent belief of college students. But they won't say it like this. What they'll say to me when I talk to them on a college campuses is, I believe morality is a personal preference. But what they really mean is, I don't believe in any absolutes. But what they really mean is, I'm absolutely certain there are no absolutes. But they won't say that. But you, do you understand what I'm trying to say? These are the things that we begin to identify in our conversations with people. Now, what's our purpose here? Why are we listening to sour notes? Why is that important in evangelism? Well, by listening to the sour notes, we may be able to detect some, here's the key thing, uncertainty in their belief. When we detect uncertainty in their belief, it may give us an opportunity to help them think more clearly about what they believe and why. And it also helps them to create a greater interest in knowing about Jesus. Let me illustrate what I mean by this. One day I was talking to my uh, auto mechanic, and I found out he was a Buddhist here in the U.S. And a Buddhist, I don't know if, if you know, is someone who's not supposed to desire anything. And... Um, so I asked him, I said, well, as a parent, don't you desire to have children? He said, well, yeah, that is a problem in my Buddhism. 
And he started sharing with me some of his other concerns about Buddhism. I said, well, has anyone shared with you anything about Christianity? He said, no. So I shared the gospel with him for the first time, maybe. Now, why do you think he was open to hearing what I had to say about the gospel? Because he realized there was a sour note, there was something wrong in his belief system, and that provided a motivation for him to want to hear what I had to say about Jesus. Do you, do you get what I'm trying to say? Why is it that, that hearing gaps or sour notes, helping people identify these gaps, why is that important? Let me give you an example. One day I was talking to a college student, and I asked her this question, Who is Jesus Christ? And she said, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I'm sure she went to a church and grew up and knew all the language. And I said, well, do you believe he's your Savior in any sense? And she said, sure, yeah, I believe that. I said, well, do you think you'll be held accountable for how you live your life? And she said, yeah, I probably will. And I said, well, how do you measure up? And you know what she said to me? She said, well, I'm a pretty good person. So here was my question to her to help her identify the sour note in her belief. I said, why do you need Jesus to save you if you can measure up? I remember asking that question to another student on a college campus once, and he paused for a moment and said, I guess I don't measure up. I guess I don't measure up. You see, that's what pre-evangelism can do. It can help them to realize that there's something wrong with their belief system, and that creates fertile soil then for you then to plant the seeds of the gospel. Let me give you one other illustration. Talking to a student one day, and she said, I believe the Bible's reliable. And yet, she said, I must do good works to be saved. Now, if you were me and talking to her, what scripture verses would you point to? Just name, name some scripture that would help her understand that she can't do both. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and the other one is Titus 3, 5. And so I, 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 I recited those verses to her, and she said, well, I... I still believe it. I still believe I'd need to do both. But you know what I did? I didn't change her mind, but I put a pebble in her shoe. Now, did she walk away from me? Yeah, she did. But I believe it would be a little more uncomfortable from that point on to walk away from the Spirit of God because now she understands what the Bible says, and the Spirit of God can then use that to convict her heart. Now, you may think this whole idea of identifying sour notes, that this is something new. Actually, this is something that Jesus and the disciples practice. Listen to this. Now, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get to eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, There's only one who is good. If you want to earn your life, obey the commandments. Which ones, the man inquired, Jesus replied, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said, what do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven, then come follow me. Now this, listen to this. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Now, here's my question. What were the two inconsistencies that Jesus wanted the rich young ruler to see? Name something. Like, what was it that he said? Why was he a good person? Why did he say he was a good person? 
because he kept the law. He kept the Ten Commandments. But what Jesus wanted him to understand is this, this, that he cared more about financial wealth than following Jesus. Now, here's my question to you. Why didn't Jesus say this to this man directly? Why didn't he just tell him, this is your problem? Why did he use this indirect way? You see, I think Jesus understood human nature. And he knows that sometimes we are not going to do anything until what? Until we see the problem for ourselves. And I think this is a principle that you and I can apply in when we're witnessing to our non-believing friends. If we allow them to surface the truth, sometimes it helps. Now, I'm not saying in all cases that's what we do. There are times that we have friends that, unless you take a two-by-four and hit them over the head, right? Do you have friends like that? They just, you know, they, they won't hear what you're saying. I think we all know the two-by-four approach, don't we? We've, we've probably all done that. What I'm trying to suggest is we need to add another approach in witnessing to people, and this is a more indirect approach where you allow them to basically try to understand the truth, just like Jesus did here with this rich young ruler. Let me give you one other example. Remember in Acts 17 when Paul was speaking to the polytheists, or I like to call the Singaporeans? That's where I lived for seven years. And they're very polytheistic. Now listen to this. I want you to see if you can hear the gap. For in him we live and move and exist, as some of your poets have said. For we are also his offspring. Being then the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver, an image formed by the art and thought of men. What's going on here? Well, Paul is trying to say, look, you're saying two different things. On the one hand, you're saying you created these wooden gods. And then on the other hand, you're saying these wooden gods created you. Both can't be true. And do you remember what their response was to the Apostle Paul? There was three responses. Some people said, Paul, you're crazy. Some said, you know, this is interesting. I'd like to hear more. And there's a third group. What happened to this third group? They accepted Jesus Christ. What I'm saying is that God can use you in your conversations with non-believers to help them identify the gaps in their beliefs to allow the Spirit of God to begin to work in their heart and take a step to the cross. Amen? And that's what we have to do with some of these people today because they're so hard-headed. And they won't listen to anything you have to say. You have to talk to them in a way that they begin to see the truth of what it is you're trying to say. But it's not just either the Holy Spirit or us. It's both. Remember in Acts 14, it said, And they came to Iconium, and they spoke, speaking of the Apostle Paul, in such a way that many believed. So we need to be persuasive with people, but then we also need to rely on the Holy Spirit. It's not one or the other. It's both that's going to make a difference today in the world we live in. Now, so we've been talking a lot about identifying sour notes, but I don't want you to forget the most important thing, and that is to listen. Why is listening so important? Well, you may realize when you talk to people that people hold to beliefs that are somewhat different than what their religion teaches. I remember one day talking to a guy who 
said he was a Muslim, but here's what he said to me. He believed that we're all getting to heaven. Is that what Muslims believe? No. Or you may talk to someone who says that they're a Christian, and yet they believe that there are other ways other than Jesus to get to heaven. So just because people use a label, Buddhist, Christian, Muslim, doesn't mean they buy into everything that that religion teaches. And that's why you and I must listen beyond the label. The other thing why it's important is by listening, we carefully communicate that we care for them. The other thing is when you get to the point where you're asking questions, all we're doing at this point is listening and identifying where people are, where what's their story, and the gaps in their beliefs. But when we get to the point where we're asking questions, and that's what we're going to do next under illuminating, I want you to remember this. Don't focus, don't try to identify all the sour notes that you hear. You're just going to turn your friends away. Point out the most standout inconsistencies rather than all inconsistencies. For example, when I asked my former nanny, how do you fit Jesus into your Buddhism? She was a Buddhist. She said, I haven't quite figured that out. You see, I had other questions I could have asked her, but I knew that that was the most important question at that moment. And I put all the other questions aside. See, if you just ask your friends questions and about all the sour notes, it's going to make them emotionally pull back from you. Has that ever happened to anyone? It's kind of like this. Let me illustrate this. When I'm having a disagreement, ladies, with my wife, which happens from time to time, uh, do you think I'm going to point out everything that, that my wife says that doesn't make sense to me or that I don't agree with? Do you think I'm going to do that? No, I'm not stupid. <laughs> if I did that, I'd be sleeping on the couch that night. What I would do and when I'm having a disagreement is just kind of focus on those things that are most important to me and lay aside those other things, all right? Because what would happen? She would emotionally pull back from me if I did that, right? The same is true in your witness to non-believers. If you just point out, here's what's wrong with your beliefs, what's going to happen? They're going to pull back from you. So you need to be wise in discerning how... You use apologetics. See, this is one of my pet peeves. I, being a son of a well-known Christian apologist, I, I learned all this apologetics very early. And uh, I did all the wrong things, you know. I, I used it as a bat and hit people over the head. And that doesn't get you anywhere. And, and I see people that are really trained in apologetics, but they have no clue how to actually use it in evangelism. And it hurts me to see this. Because we need to be as wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Amen? Okay, under hearing conversations, there are those three points, right? What are the three points? Listen, learn, and hear. Can you remember that? Listen, learn, and hear. Under illuminating now, well, first of all, let me, let me show you this graphic here. Uh, what question should we ask this car salesman? He's saying, notice the plush interior. What question are we, should, are, are we supposed to ask? Where's the engine? Okay, so in a sense, when you illuminate the truth, 
you know, you're trying to help them to see what's there. Just like when we came into this room, somebody turned the light on. We need to illuminate to our friends the truth that their engine is missing. And how do we do this? Well, as a musician, we listen and hear, right? As an artist, what do you think an artist does? An artist paints. And what you and I need to do for people is to paint a picture for them by asking them what? Questions. See, when you paint a picture for them, in a sense, by asking questions, you're holding a mirror up and you're helping to reflect, help them to see themselves more clearly. So under illuminating, we want to clarify, surface, and remember. Let's look at those three. Clarify beliefs. In other words, in my conversations with people, I have discovered that if I want to make some progress with people sometimes, I need to first of all clarify for them their own beliefs. And one of the ways that I would do this is by asking them a question. What do you mean by? So yesterday... I was on a plane and talking to this guy who claimed to be Methodist. Now, I didn't ask him, what do you mean by Methodist? What I said to him is, you know, I know within the Methodist tradition, there's different branches. You know, some more liberal, some more conservative. Where, what kind of church do you kind of fit in? Okay, so I was trying to clarify where he was. Now, I don't think he was ultra-conservative, so, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure spiritually, you know, where exactly he, he is. I know there's some very liberal Methodist churches that, you know, ordain gays and, and things like that. And so uh, in my mind, uh, you know, I, I can understand kind of where he's coming from if I understand kind of where, what kind of tradition within the Methodist he, he follows. Do you get what I'm trying to say? So when you're talking to people, you want to clarify their beliefs. So if somebody says, I believe all religions are basically the same. What do you mean by they're basically the same? I remember I was at Texas Tech University a, a number of years ago. I was talking to a student, and he, he said this, I believe Jesus is the Son of God, and he died for us. And I thought to myself, well, that guy's probably a Christian, right? But then I said, well, Wade, apply the same standard that you're teaching other people. So I said, okay, can you clarify for me, what do you mean by Jesus died for us? And you know what this student said to me? He said, I believe Jesus died as a moral example of how we should live. Is that Christianity? It's not. Why? Because Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us. And in the Greek, the preposition there is huper, which means he died in our place and for our benefit. He was more than a moral example. But had I not asked for clarifying his beliefs, clarifying the terminology he used, I probably would have missed an opportunity. So what I'm trying to say is if you're talking to people and they use religious terminology, I want you to ask a question, what do you mean by it? Now, before you practice this with people you think are non-believers, I want you to practice this here amongst yourself. So like after church, somebody says to you, oh, the Lord was good to me today. What question do you want to ask him? In what way was he good? See, this isn't rocket science. All of us can do this. So I want you to practice this with people here in the church till you get comfortable with this. 
And then I want you to look for opportunities with people that you perceive as being non-believing and listen and wait for words that they used. Like yesterday, this Methodist was telling me that this guy he works for is an atheist. And so I asked him, how do you know he's an atheist? What what led him to be an atheist? And he didn't know any of these kind of details. So obviously he wasn't as concerned for his soul. <laughs> Otherwise he would have known some of these details, right? So I'm just saying that practice this here amongst friends and then learn to develop this in your life. Because people will use all kinds of religious terminology, especially cults. Like Jesus is the Son of God. Right? Some of my Jehovah's Witnesses friends believe that, just like us. But I bet you don't believe that Jesus is an angel, do you? See, they believe Jesus is an angel. So be careful about the terminology. So clarify beliefs. Secondly, surface uncertainty. Surface uncertainty. How are we supposed to do this? Well, what I've learned is that we can begin by asking introductory questions to our friends. Let me just give you some uh, questions that I use with college students. Do you really think it matters what we believe? Do you think it really matters what we believe? See, after 9-11, I remember talking to a student one day who said to me this. You know, before 9-11, I used to think it didn't matter what I believed. But now after 9-11, I now know it does matter what I believe. You can move in a spiritual direction, right? Secondly, do you think it's possible, I mentioned this earlier, that you and I were put here on this earth for some kind of purpose? See, asking your friends questions about purpose and meaning, especially when I worked with Chinese graduate students who were told that there is no God. They struggled with that because they desired a sense of purpose and meaning for their life. And I used that to help them take steps to Christ. And some of them became Christians when I work with Campus Crusade. So, you, I'm curious, what gives you the motivation to get up every morning? We, we mentioned that one. So, will you ask introductory questions, then over a period of time, then you can begin to go further. How is it possible, if I'm talking to someone who claims to be an atheist, how is it possible for there to be meaning and purpose in our lives when there is no God. How do we explain things like love, joy, beauty, all these non-material things? How do we explain all these things if there is no God? There is no explanation for that. And these kind of thought-provoking questions can help people go further. I remember one day talking to uh, this uh, Chinese uh, lady uh, when I lived in Singapore, and talking to her, I found out that her mother is a Buddhist and her sister is a Christian, so she's trying to figure out which one to believe. So here's a question I had for her. I said, if you were coming to the end of your life and you met Jesus and other great religious leaders and each suggested a different path, whose advice would you take? I said, wouldn't you take the advice of someone who's been to the other side and come back to tell us about it? She thought for a moment and said, you know, that's a good point. Now, she didn't become a Christian that day, but I removed from her mind that day the idea that they're all equal, that there's no difference between any other religion. All right. Now, here are some helpful questions for those with Christian backgrounds. You mentioned that you went to church pretty regularly as a child. 
I'm curious, did you ever come to a point in your life where your relationship with God became more important to you? We talked about this a little bit last night. So asking a question of somebody who's been in church all their life about when did God become more important in your life? Because if God became more important in their life at a certain period of their life, then there could be a crisis that they went through. And God used that then to help them to make that step of faith between belief that and belief in. So clarify beliefs, surface uncertainty, and the third point that we want to talk about this morning before we close is remember. What do we want to remember? We want to remember the three Ds. What's the three Ds? You see, I've discovered there's a barometer that I can use, especially as I've talked to college students for the last 20 years, that if I keep this three Ds in mind, when I'm talking to a college student, for example, I can maximize the possibility of my effectiveness. I'm not saying I'm going to be effective. They may not be very open to hearing anything. But I can maximize the possibility of my effectiveness. Now, see, you need I need to understand this. The gospel may be, uh, uh, um, uh, how do I say this? The gospel is offensive. But we need to communicate the gospel in the least offensive way as possible. And what I've learned is this little barometer will help us to do that. It's called the three Ds. Doubt, defensiveness, desire. We want to learn to ask questions in a way to surface doubt, that minimize defensiveness, but most importantly, create a desire for them to want to continue the conversation. Now, we've talked a little bit about surfacing doubt. Now, how do we minimize people's defensiveness? I think this is, this is a problem, right? Minimizing people's defensiveness. Let me illustrate uh, what I mean by this. One day I was talking to a guy in an exercise room when I lived in Singapore, and I couldn't remember where he was spiritually, so I asked him this question. I can't remember. What church do you go to? He said, I go to such and such Catholic church. And he paused and said, we believe in Mary. So what do you think my question was based on what I taught you today? What would I ask him? What do you mean by we believe in Mary? Because I thought that that would be helpful. Well, I was wrong. You know what he said to me? He said, we believe that Mary makes up what Jesus lacks. Now, at this point, I could have said to him, well, you know, the Bible doesn't teach that. But what would have happened? He would have got defensive. So here's what I said to him. Do you know what 1 Timothy 2.5 says? He said no. Then I quoted it for him. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, there's only one God and one meteor between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So what do you think my next question was? Why don't you believe that? No. My next question is, what do you think this verse teaches? Then he shared with me what this verse teaches, and to my surprise, I said, well, let me make sure I understand what you're saying. You're saying there's God, and there's a man, and there's one meteor between God and man, and that person is Jesus Christ? Is that what you say this verse teaches? He said, yes, that's what this verse teaches. So here's the question I asked him. I said, certainly I could see how some Catholics could see Mary as being a helpful person who could pray for them. Maybe it's just some Baptist. I grew up Baptist. Might consider it helpful if we got Billy Graham to pray for us. See, don't make a minor issue a major obstacle when you're building bridges to the gospel with someone. But here's the question I ask next. 
But can Mary do anything to help you atone for your sins in any way? He paused for a moment and said, no, she can't. You see what I did? I surfaced his doubt, and yet I minimized his defensiveness. But in the world we live in today, we have to do more than that. We have to create desire for people to want to continue the conversation. In our book, my father and I make this point, that people are reluctant to get out of a leaky boat until you provide them a better boat. Have you learned that in your witness with other people? And what we need to do is help people to see how Jesus can meet the desires of their heart. Let me illustrate this in closing. One day I was talking to a non-believer, and to be honest, he had some marital problems. And to be even more honest, he was having problems being faithful to his wife. And here's what I said to him. In the days of Tiger Woods, God can help me to be faithful to my wife. Because that same power that rose Jesus from the dead is available to me. Now, why do you think he wants to talk to me about Jesus? He wants to save his marriage. So can we learn how to talk to people in such a way that they begin to see that there's something special about Jesus? And this is exactly what Jesus did at the woman at the well. He helped her to understand, if you drink of the water that I give you, you'll never be thirsty again. So we'll continue this um, uh, during our church service time. But uh, this morning we talked about hearing conversation and illuminating conversations. Let's close, uh, close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this time this morning. Lord, we, uh, we know that we're not always very, a very good listener. We're always proclaiming but not very sensitive to where people are at. And I pray, God, that you will give us greater sensitivity to know where people are at to listen, to really begin to understand their story and begin to hear the gaps in their beliefs. But, but Lord, help us to be sensitive when we ask them questions that we don't, over, don't come across in an overwhelming way, but we're sensitive to how you want us to lead in their life and we'll help them to take step towards Christ. Lord, I pray that every day and in every way we would help people to take one step closer to Jesus Christ. We thank you for our time this morning in Jesus' name.